Father, I thank you so much for the grace you have bestowed upon us in this place, that we are here, that we are assembled, and that we are under the counsel of your word, and that we are available to your spirit to serve you, even as we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of you. Guide us through all that comes our way in the weeks and months and years that you may provide for us here, and that you might drive us into work and ministry in your name. Father, we pray that you would counsel us against pride, against self-satisfaction. You would remind us that we do a work only in your power, or we do it not at all. And that this is truly about you, your glory, your kingdom, your people. And as such, Father, we are your caretakers, your under-shepherds, your ambassadors. Let us always hear your voice. Let us always follow your lead. And let us always remain in your care and counsel, Father. We ask that that start tonight, uh, last night, and this morning. That what we study in the pages of Matthew 16, Father, would set us on the path of serving you with a right heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man who once said, Let us begin by committing ourselves to the truth, to see it like it is, to tell it like it is, to find the truth, to speak the truth, and to live the truth. That's a noble statement, isn't it? I'm sure we'd all agree with it. It's not very surprising, really, to say it. You know what is surprising about that statement, though? Who said it? That was spoken by Richard Nixon. Uh, You know, whatever your politics, it's easy to see the irony in that statement. He championed the truth, or so he said, but when the truth came into conflict with his re-election campaign, well, uh, we saw what happened. You know, we all do the same thing, though. That is to say, like Nixon, we all say we want to know the truth. We all say we want to live by the truth. But the reality is we all keep a certain preferred version of the truth as our own. And when that preferred view comes into conflict with the reality of things, then you'll find that your commitment to finding and speaking and living the truth might be a bit tenuous. Jesus faces a situation of that sort today in the chapter we're studying in Matthew 16. And it comes from two directions. One you would have expected, but one that you may not have expected. That is, both his enemies and his disciples struggle with the truth that he reveals to them through the signs that he does. In today's passage, as it opens, we're going to start by resetting the scene, remembering where we've been, and then we'll go forward. And that actually begins at the very end of chapter 15. At the end of 15, when we were last studying, we had Jesus in the Decapolis. Remember, that's the region of ten Greek cities that's just to the east of the Sea of Galilee in present-day Jordan. He had traveled to that side, to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, in part to get away from the crowds. While he was there, you remember last week, he healed and then miraculously fed the crowd of Gentiles that had come to him there, and the number of men was 4,000. Now, remember, this is after the earlier experience in which he had fed 5,000 Jews on the Jewish side, just over the border of the Jewish side from uh, the Sea of Galilee. That's in the town of Bethsaida. So he did the, the first experience and then travels against the, the, the waters that go over to the Gentile side, does it again, and he's doing this to teach his disciples, remember? The whole idea of what shepherding in the kingdom would look like. You don't send away the people who have burdens and needs. You minister to those people. And he showed it to them in two different examples. They keep asking Jesus each time, send the needy away. He keeps showing them how you do ministry. But the fact is, they're not getting it. They haven't got it. And that ignorance by the disciples, especially at the beginning of the ministry here, is often a source of humor in the gospel. There's a little bit of that coming today, in fact. 
But their story of bumbling around and of confusion, it's also a source of some conviction and a little encouragement to us. On the one hand, it's convicting when you see that those who can walk so closely with Christ on a day-to-day basis can yet still struggle to figure out what he's doing and what he's saying. And I think that's a reminder to all of us that we always have a long way to go. As much as we may spend time in the Word and with Christ, we're always learning what it means to be Jesus in this world. But on the other hand, it's also a bit encouraging when you see how Jesus eventually elevated all of these guys, save one, into positions of authority in the early church. And they began all their work in a confused, befuddled state. They were absorbed in petty, self-serving interests at times. But in the end, these guys became godly examples to us. I mean, these are the guys who wrote most of the New Testament, so you're looking up to them even now as it is. So think about this. If those guys could begin their walk with Jesus so poorly and then end so well, well, there's hope for all of us by the grace of God, right? All right, let's move on. We have this... This building story, Jesus training his disciples, them not getting it, the Pharisees attacking him in the midst of it. And we come back to that main theme now at the beginning of chapter 16. Jesus is going to return now from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee back to the west, or from your side, I guess it would be this way. And he's going to be encountering his enemies again. That's where the story picks up. I want you to start with me at the end of chapter 15, the very last verse, that's where we left off. And then we go into 16. It says in 1539, And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up. And testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, well, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern... The signs of the times, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So we leave chapter 15, and Matthew says that after the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus gets back on a boat and he comes to a region of Magadan. But Mark, if you look at Mark's gospel, Mark says that he goes to a place called the district of Dalmanutha. And Uh, You might think, well, which one is right? Well, they're both right, because Magadan is the ancient name of a place that today is called Migdal. It was known in the day also as Magdala. These are all the same place. And the harbor for Magdala, or Magadan, is Dalmanutha. So it's the same place. By the way, the, the city we're talking about here, the little town we're talking about, is best known for one of its residents, a lady who came from Magdala. Any guesses? Mary of Magdala, or we might say Mary Magdalene. Anyway, it's located almost directly opposite on the eastern, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee from the Decapolis. So Jesus just literally sailed directly from east to west, and he gets to the other side, and guess who's waiting for him? As he gets off the boat, there are Sadducees and Pharisees waiting for him. Now these men, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they normally lived in Jerusalem. Last time we saw them, they had traveled up a three-day walk into the Galilee to find Jesus and confront him. And then Jesus got away from them by going to the other side of the lake for the time we've already seen. Now he's traveled back, and they're still there, waiting for him. I mean, that gives you a sense of just how determined they were to disrupt and discredit Jesus' ministry. They're three days away from home, and they're waiting around to see if he ever comes back so they can continue their harassment of him. And it's now become a step worse, because now you have Pharisees, and for the first time, Matthew mentions Sadducees, just as a quick Background, 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees were different sects of Judaism, of the religious uh, orders of the day. But you need to think of them like political parties. Because the political system of Israel was a religious system. Their law was the law of Moses. So their judges were rabbis. So the two worlds are one in their mind. And in just like any other order of of human politic, you end up with different parties. So the conservatives of their day were the Pharisees. The liberals of their day were the Sadducees. And then you had a few other splinter groups like Zealots or Herodians. But they're all just versions of politic within Judaism. But as such, they are enemies typically. No, no more than Democrats and Republicans seem to get along today. No more than that did the Pharisees and the Sadducees get along. They were often at each other's throats. But you know the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, they were both against Jesus, which made them uh, allies, if you will, for a time. And now they're together, coming against Jesus. And they're not there because they admired him, obviously. They're not there because they have any sincere interest in trying to understand who he is. No, they are there to tear him down. And in that way, they were hypocrites. You know, the definition of a hypocrite, right? It's someone who says one thing and does another. They were portraying themselves to the crowds as if they were going through their due diligence, just investigating the claims that Jesus was making, trying to determine, is this truly the Messiah? So from the crowd's point of view, they were just doing their job. The truth, though, is very different. And that's plainly evident in the passage. They come and it says here in verse 1 in chapter 16, they come to Jesus, they ask him to perform a miraculous sign, ostensibly, that was to prove that he was the Messiah. But notice Matthew says they were coming to test Jesus. You see that in verse 1. And by test, what he means is they're looking for a way to discredit him, to tear him down, to trip him up. Some kind of task, request, or otherwise, that if Jesus were to play along with their game, it would expose him in a way that they could tear him down. What's the test? What's the trap? Well, Matthew actually gives it to us in verse 1. He says, they ask for a sign, and notice, from heaven, specifically. Here's what they mean. The Pharisees and the Sadducees knew that the devil had real power. That is to say, they, they were not ignorant of the fact that the enemy can do things on earth, that have supernatural effect. And they had a theory or a teaching that said that the devil had the power to perform miracles on earth, things that were supernatural, things that might confuse you or mislead you into thinking that God was doing the the act that you witness. And they were right. That is, in fact, true. And that does still happen even today. But their thinking went on to say, only God can do a miracle or a sign from heaven. That was their teaching. Now, here's the problem with that. What constitutes a miracle on earth versus a miracle from heaven? What exactly is the definition of that? I mean, if you think about it, virtually any miracle that you could witness here on earth is, by definition, an earthly sign. Try to imagine something that is from heaven that you don't experience on earth. Well, that was the trick. They used that ambiguous distinction to manipulate things to their own purpose. So in this case, that's how they were going to trap Jesus. They're going to ask him for a sign from heaven, knowing that almost anything he could do, they could turn around and say, oh, that's just a sign on earth. And as such, they would say, you did that with the power of Beelzebub. Remember that claim? That's what they said back in chapter 12. So it's their tactic here to look to the crowd as if they're just doing their careful investigation. But as soon as Jesus plays into their game, they're ready to pounce on him and say, no, no, no. Ignore this man. He just did a sign from earth. That proves he's doing it with the power of the devil. 
Jesus knows this. He knows their hearts. So in verse 2, you notice he doesn't even address the request. He goes to the point of their hypocrisy and their ignorance for having asked this. He makes a comparison between reading the signs of weather and understanding the signs of his miracles. And he's simply saying this, men in that day could look at the sky and they could make some determination on what the weather would be like based on what they saw in the sky. He says if it was a red sky in the evening, they could know that, oh, the weather's going to be fair. But if it was a red sky in the morning, they would have a good reason to think, "Ah, a storm must be coming. You may have heard the old adage, right? Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky by morn, sailors be warned. If you've ever heard that, wondered where it came from, you just found out from the Bible. But reading weather signs is not an exact science, right? I mean, even just that little ditty I gave you, that's not enough to know for sure what the weather's going to be. It's often going to be a little wrong. You have to have some skill and experience. You have to kind of you know, look at things carefully if you're going to be accurate at all. In fact, even today, modern weathermen are often wrong, right? 50% of the time, it seems. It's the only job you're going to have where you can be wrong half the time and you, you get a good grade. That's, that's the nature of the problem of, of weather forecasting. So Jesus' point is this. If those men could discern the weather based on such ambiguous data, fleeting signs, little indications, hard-to-read things, and yet they could get pretty good at reading the weather, then they certainly should have been able to recognize their own Messiah when he stood before them doing powerful, obvious, miraculous things that only God could do. There should have been no delusion, no confusion on their part at all. So he asked them in verse 3, How is this possible? How can you read the signs of the weather and not recognize the signs of the times, he says. And just to be clear, what he he means by signs of the times is the times were the time of the first coming of the Messiah. And the signs of the coming of the Messiah were the signs that Jesus was doing. So in their day, those were the signs of their times. And they should have been able to look at them and say, guys, I think we know what we're looking at right now. And yet in the face of that and all that overwhelming proof that they had seen, They keep maintaining, we just don't know. We just can't be sure. Can you give us another sign? Come on. They are not only hypocrites, they're also ignorant. And that's an insight here that I don't want you to miss. Yes, they were hypocrites in the sense that they weren't sincerely looking to know if Jesus was the Messiah. They were going at this investigation with false motives. They didn't truly have the truth in their hearts. They were basically pretending to be seriously considering the possibility that he was the Messiah. But in reality, he wasn't the kind of Messiah they were looking for. If you had walked up to a Pharisee in that day, and you had said to them, when the Messiah comes, what will he be like? The answer they would have told you is, well, kind of like me. That is to say, kind of like a Pharisee. Maybe a super Pharisee. You know, just a little better than me. But that's the attitude they had. The mindset was, we represent what God wants. The Messiah will just be more like us. And if you'd asked the Sadducee, by the way, you would have gotten the same answer. No, no, he'll be like a Sadducee. Because that's our attitude, right? We think that who we are and what we stand for is the good of the the world in any context. And the rest of the world who is different than us, they've got it wrong. This is that preferred version or view of truth that we all hold on to to some degree. Even the most humble among us have those blind spots. These guys just were on steroids with their blind spots. So they are hypocritical in the sense that they act as if they care about the truth when they had no interest. Once they looked at Jesus and they said, wait a minute, a manual laborer from Nazareth, no professional training, oh, and you hate our Mishnah, this guy cannot be the Messiah, no chance. 
Now what do we do with them? Well, let's just figure out how to make sure the rest of the crowd sees it the way we do. We'll just have to work on discrediting him. That's not a sincere investigation. So they're hypocrites. But here's the thing, friends. It's more than that. Jesus says they couldn't discern the signs. He didn't say, why are you pretending to not notice? He said, why can you read the weather and you could not understand the signs of the times? He's telling us they are also not only hypocritical in their motives, but they're also ignorant of the signs. They literally missed them. As hard as it may be to believe, they did not know that what they were looking at was proving that Jesus was the Messiah. They tried to judge whether Jesus was truly the Messiah based on heavenly signs, and the reality is they couldn't recognize him even with the signs that they were given. They chose to, I think that's why Jesus chose to use the example of predicting weather as his illustration here, because as smart as these guys were, and as learned as they were, all of that smarts and learning was centered on the material world, on the natural world, on things like their Mishnah, and on how to do the rituals of Judaism. They had this attitude of what was the world's view of things, and they had no concept of God's view. So when it came to spiritual truth, they knew nothing of God, which is very ironic when you consider their profession. I hope that doesn't shock you, not just in their case, but also if I tell you that this is true today as well. There are people who portray themselves as experts in religion, whatever denomination or, or, or religious experience that they're representing, and they don't know anything about God. You know, it's not that hard, by the way. No one's out there vetting people. You know, anyone can claim to know anything. Who's going to tell you that they're wrong? And they can put a, a reverend in front of their name, or as is more common these days, apostle, bishop, potentate. I mean, people come up with whatever term they want, put it on a business card, and tell you that they have some expertise. No one's checking that unless you do. And it was no different then. That is to say, expertise was man-made. You know, you can go to a building, you can get a degree, you can get your certificate and put it on the wall. What good is that? It only means something if it's a true reflection of the person's heart. And often it isn't. At least not in that case, not in the case of the Pharisees. So they could not recognize their own Messiah when he came for them. And so it's ironic. They asked for a sign from heaven when the only kind of signs they could understand were signs of earth. And I will tell you today, our world is literally filled with people like this. Everywhere you go, you will find people who are incredibly smart. They're very accomplished in whatever line of work that they have put themselves in. They know the ways of the world. And yet, at the same time, they are completely ignorant of spiritual truth. They know nothing of uh, God's realm, of heaven, of hell, of judgment, of the eternity that stretches out after the grave. The, their understanding of those things is literally beyond their comprehension. In fact, let's be honest, most of the time they don't think about it at all. They don't even have an interest in it. They can be the smartest person you've ever met when it comes to theoretical physics or mathematics or social media or whatever they're pouring their life into. And yet if you get them onto a conversation about what happens after you die, you get a deer in the headlights look and an uncomfortable awkwardness like, can we just move on? Why? Oh, and by the way, this is true even for religious people. You know, the people who go to some kind of religious event regularly and they do all the religious rigmarole. But like the Pharisees, they can be very observant religiously and yet completely miss the truth of who God is. Why is that true? How is it possible? And add to that the fact that in Jesus' day you had uneducated, untrained people in the crowds who did recognize the signs that Jesus was the Messiah. This seems quite odd, doesn't it? Those who were best trained, supposedly, in the uh, art of knowing God, missed him, despite obvious signs. 
while others who were the worst of the society had no interest in God or in religion, generally speaking, they're flocking to Jesus and they recognize what the signs mean. That seems quite backward, doesn't it? In fact, anytime you see something backward, it's usually a good sign that that's God. It's kind of opposite of the world is what God typically does. Here's why it's possible. It's possible, friends, because no one discovers the truth about God. No one. Not on the basis of intellect or, or education or even effort. You know, people talk about seekers or saying that we are seeker-friendly. You might hear that in some corners of the church. You notice you haven't heard that here. You know why we're not seeker-friendly? There's no such thing. There's no such thing. Now, there are people who find God. That is, they come to know Christ because of some process. They hear about something. They look into something. They get interested in something. They read a book. They go to church. Yes, that's a process. And we might think of that process as seeking. Yes. But what the Bible says is, no one seeks for God. No, not one. Romans 3. It didn't say some don't. Most don't. It said no one seeks for God. So what must we understand then? If we hear that in the Bible, and yet we see people who seem to be seeking, what do we do with those two thoughts? Well, here's what you're learning. The the links in the chain of events that bring someone to Jesus, when we think we see the whole chain of event, and we think, oh, that's how they sought for Jesus and found Jesus, here's what you're learning. You need to add a few more links on that chain that you didn't think about before the ones you actually saw. What were the earlier links? Well, according to Scripture, no one seeks for God unless God draws them. So there had to have been some act of God in the beginning to draw someone into the process, which then led them to know Christ. That's what you're learning. And so in the case of the Pharisees versus the crowds, there were some in that crowd who were being moved by the Spirit to understand the signs that were being given and as such to respond to them, and yet there were others who were not being given that option. And we come to know the truth about God only because He chooses to reveal Himself to us in a moment. So as he performed signs, some got it, some didn't. And some were receiving the revelation of God in that moment, and some were not. And that's still the case today. He reveals himself through a method. And what's the principal method today? Well, it's this. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It's through the word that God is revealing himself. But if you don't have the Spirit of God teaching you what it means, it's just nonsense to you, which is what we learned last week. I mean, yeah, you can read it. It's English. If you've got an English Bible and you know English, well, then you can read it. But that's not the point. Reading it is not the point. The point is understanding it. And maybe more to the point, understanding it here. You know, the Pharisees, they knew the Bible better than you do, at least the Old Testament. They memorized it. Have you memorized the Old Testament? Yet they didn't know Jesus as their Messiah, and you do. That's the point. They had an intellectual understanding, they had a human level of appreciation, but they lacked the spiritual understanding that comes only from God. And understanding the meaning of spiritual truth requires that God make it known to us. And that isn't just true of the unbeliever, by the way. Certainly it is. That's how you come to know Christ, because God reveals himself to you. But it's also true of the believer in the sense of how a disciple is growing in the knowledge of Jesus. Later in this chapter, if you want proof of what I'm saying, we're going to get to this next week, but I'm going to preempt myself just a little bit. Look at verse 17 of chapter 16. And in verse 17, there's a moment coming up, which we're going to study next week, in which Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And, you know, Johnny on the spot, Peter, always quick with the answer, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And he's right, obviously. 
And naturally, we can assume that, well, Peter must have come to that understanding by his own reasoning. He, he saw the signs Jesus was doing. He heard the teaching of Jesus. And so he thought to himself, I think this must be the Messiah. Yeah, I think that's who we have here. I think you're the Messiah. That's what he did, right? Well, I'm sure that's what Peter thought. That's how he saw it happening. Look at Jesus' response. Jesus said, nope, that's not how that happened. He says, your faith was not the result of human intellect or reasoning. It was the result of the Father revealing it to you. That's how everyone receives spiritual truth. And the experience from a human perspective is that I asked questions, I got answers, I thought about it, I considered it, I reasoned it out, I decided, I made a confession, I came to Christ. Put another link at the beginning of that chain. God revealed himself to you so that you would ask questions, so that you would listen, so that you would understand, so that you would confess. Put one more link. If the links of chain in any conversation about what God has done in someone's life, if the first link in that chain is not God, you don't have enough links in your chain. That's what the Bible says. God himself reveals himself. And the truth of it is self-evident. If God did not reveal himself to you, how would you know anything about God? Where would you go to find it? Can you go to heaven and investigate on your own who God is and how he works. The only reason we know anything about him is because he's told us. And then he says, it's more than that. Your understanding of it depends on me. Now, as God's messengers, that is, as the church called to go out and seek for the lost, we depend on the truth of this. By that I mean this. We depend on the fact that we are not responsible for whether or not somebody understands this. Because God forbid if that's how it works. Right? Somebody else's eternal future hinges on your ability to explain it to them. What a scary notion that would be. No, thankfully, hallelujah, hearts receive messages because of God's work. We're just there as the mouthpiece. We're just there to share the word that God has given us to share. And without the revelation of the Spirit, the word is like that we heard back in the parable of the sower and the seed. It's the seed that falls on hard soil. It goes nowhere. That's up to the heart, not up to us. We're just supposed to throw the seed. And what the enemy is willing to do is to take a heart that's hard, not listening to the word, and distract it from the opportunity to know the truth. And you know how his favorite way to do that is? For the religiously minded, that is. For those who are religiously inclined, what's his favorite way to distract them from the truth? Signs, miracles, things that impress the flesh because they're exciting and they're mystical and they're magical and they they amaze us and we want to hear more of that and we seem to think that's an experience with God that has value and meaning and the reality is it's cotton candy when what you really needed was the meat and so God is uh, the enemy is constantly looking to distract the world with signs if they have an interest in God at all and that's what you see happening here with the Pharisees notice in verse 4 Jesus says to the Pharisees, I'm not giving you any more signs, which is a repeating of what he said back in chapter 12. No more signs for you. And the reason is because the time for signs is up. The sign of Jonah, he said, is the only one you're going to see. And what he refers to there, of course, is the death of Christ, the resurrection after three days. That's what he refers to when he says the sign of Jonah, his resurrection. Why are they getting that sign? Well, because the whole world's getting that sign. Right? He wasn't going to do anything for them personally between now and then. But when he dies and resurrects, no one's missing that. Look, if someone dies and then resurrects, that's a powerful sign that you can't avoid paying attention to. And that was his point. The time for convincing you that I am the Messiah, that ended back in chapter 12. At this point, he's just preparing his disciples, knowing he's going to the cross. And when he dies, that will be the final sign. There is a real danger when unbelievers have as their priority... Seeking signs, seeking experiences, 
in place of coming to a true and abiding knowledge of God through his word. And the enemy is playing to that. The Bible says he has revealed himself now once and for all through his son. And therefore, if we give in, if that is to say, if we pander to those who are not yet believing and desire signs, if we pander to that desire, you know what we're doing inadvertently? We're supporting the conjecture that there is a search process. In other words, we're actually reinforcing bad theology that says you find God by a search process. When the reality is, you don't have to search, it's right here. Think about that for a minute. The Pharisees had Jesus giving them visible signs in their presence that proved he was the Messiah, and they didn't buy it. The equivalent of that today is God has said exactly who he is to the whole world in plain language. They don't need to go searching for it. They don't need signs. They just need to read this book. But if we say, oh, you want a sign? Well, come, let's give you some signs to prove to you that Jesus is God. We've actually said this isn't the most important thing, and we've diminished Christ by diminishing his word. This is all people need. And those who will hear it are those God has revealed himself to. Those who will not hear it are those that he has not, at least yet, revealed himself to. And there's no better solution. Friends, as he says at the end of Luke 16, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, then they will not believe, even if someone should be raised from the dead. That is, even if you gave them powerful signs, it won't be enough. It's either this or nothing else works. Signs are dangerous if they take the place of what God has already revealed in his word. So for an unbeliever, seeking for signs is not a means to the truth. It's a dangerous distraction. But for the believer, there is another version of this problem. And Matthew, I think, recognized that, and he takes the story that we just covered in the first half, and he mates it, that is, he puts it together with, I would say juxtaposed, but I think there's probably some Aggies in the room. So he just, he puts it next to, oh, I feel a church split coming. All right. (laughs) He puts it next to another story that shows that the same basic problem was going on among the disciples, but in a slightly different sense. I want you to look with me now to the second half of the story, verse 5. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Did you not understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Man, thank God for these men, you know? I mean, I just find it so encouraging that these guys could sit in a boat with Jesus and he could say something like that and they just have no clue. That there is hope for all of us if this is how these guys thought, right? Now, here's what they're doing in verse 5. Matthew only gives us a brief mention. Mark gives us some more background. But here's what they did. After they see the Sadducees and the Pharisees on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, they get in a boat again. And they go back now, easterly, and they go back to Bethsaida. Now, remember, Bethsaida is the place in which all of this kind of began with the feeding of the 5,000. And Mark tells us that they, as they head out for Bethsaida, they have only one loaf of bread amongst them all. Somebody wasn't thinking. And as they get into the boat, they start this ironic conversation. It's ironic when you consider where they're going. 
They're going to the location where he fed 5,000 plus people, right? And they say to themselves, we don't have enough food. Oh, I thought you were going to bring the bread. No, it's your turn to bring the bread. Okay, now we're in trouble. I told you to bring bread, right? And you get the, it's like the kids in the back seat in the car on the long trip. And I can imagine with all that finger pointing, Jesus is somewhere in the boat just, you know, like this as he's hearing all of this. And while they're fretting over lunch, what Jesus starts to do is move their conversation back to more important things. To spiritual things. While they're busy worrying about their meal, he's talking about big things. So he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Now Mark also says that he added a third group. Beware the leaven of the Herodians, of Herod. Why doesn't Matthew mention the third? Well, because I think earlier he had only talked about the Pharisees and Sadducees meeting them on the shore, and so he just carries that forward into the story. But with Mark, we see the full picture. What was he saying? Well, first of all, leaven, that's yeast. Yeast in the Bible is a picture of sin. You probably knew that. And it's a great picture because the way leaven kind of infects the whole dough, so does sin go to all parts of who we are. It's, it's infecting us, if you will. So leaven is always a picture of sin. Now, in this case, though, he gets very specific. He says the sin of Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. So he's not just talking generally about beware sinful people. I mean, if that was the thing he was saying, you pretty much have to say every human being on earth at that point, right? That's not very meaningful. He's talking more specifically. Three characteristics of each of these groups which have the potential to seriously damage ministry, if you're not careful. What are those three issues? Well, first of all, the sin of the Pharisees. Their sin, principally, was in seeking the kingdom through self-righteousness, through legalism, through the Mishnah, through their set of rules, through Pharisaic Judaism, which had come to replace a true understanding of Scripture. They had that external piety, but they had no inward godliness. And you've probably met people like this, right? And when you get to know them and you realize how hypocritical they are, you can't stand them anymore. That's who these men were. Why did they oppose Jesus? Well, because he rejected their rules. He rejected the Mishnah. He, he was actually threatening to tear down Pharisaic Judaism. Well, that cut to the core of their power base, and so they hated him for it. That was the Pharisees' sin. The sin of the Sadducees was, as, as such as you would expect, they're on the opposite end of this political spectrum. They're liberal. So the sin of the uh, Sadducees was in seeking the kingdom in worldliness, in wealth, in power. So they would. Ex- what you need to know about the Sadducees is they were the political party in power in the day. They had the majority on the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of Jews. And as such, they also controlled the temple. So the temple operation was under their authority. Well, whoever controlled the temple had the money. Because they used the, the activity at the temple as a source of commerce, and they scraped a little off the top for themselves. So that's why you had money changers in the temple. That's why you had business in the temple. Because they used it as such. And they exploited it to enrich themselves. And uh, they are the forerunners of those who try to turn ministry into a profit-making business. And they opposed Jesus because he said all of that was wrong. Don't make my father's house a house of business. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. And he turns over the money changer tables. Remember that? And he told them that they were a den of thieves. Well, naturally, now they oppose Jesus. So that was their sin. And then finally, the sin of the Herodians. The Herodians were those who thought they could achieve the kingdom here on earth through government through supporting the Roman Empire and its Pax Romana and its great institutions and its building projects. And they saw utopia being built through the Roman Empire instead of in the way God intended. 
And so they supported Roman rule, they supported the Roman government, and as such, they opposed Jesus because he came saying he was a king ready to set up a new kingdom, and they didn't want him to upset the apple cart of the Roman Empire. So what Jesus just told his disciples is, you need to beware of the negative sinful influences of these three groups as they try to impress themselves on you. Don't fall into the temptations to substitute easier earthly goals for the higher spiritual goals that we have in the kingdom. So that would mean don't substitute self-righteousness and legalism for grace. And that would mean don't uh, try to obtain your kingdom reward in this world by chasing after this world's values and its wealth. Instead, store up your treasure in heaven. And don't put your trust in government or in any earthly institution thinking that somehow it's going to bring heaven down to earth for us. Look, I hate to shock you, but this place is going to go to hell in a handbasket and it's halfway there now. And it's due to be burned up. Anything you invest in making this world heaven is wasted. The only thing we're here to do is to recruit people out of this world so that they can be ready to enter the kingdom when the time comes. So support justice and equality and all those good values, yes, but don't do it at the expense of investing your time, talent, and treasure in the kingdom program. That's where you may be going wrong. So what Jesus says is, beware of those three things. That is, making legalism your priority, or making money or wealth your priority, or making social justice or social causes your priority. Focus on the kingdom. In Matthew verse 7, what do they hear? The disciples. They don't hear any of that. What they think is, Jesus noticed we didn't bring bread. He's going to be mad at us. We're going to have to go buy it somewhere now. We're going to have to go find bread somewhere. And he's worried that we're just going to buy it from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware their bread. Don't buy their bread. And they're looking at each other like, why did you get us in this trouble with Jesus? (laughs) So Jesus hears the argument and he he reacts in disgust. And let me just read you what Mark says about that moment because you get a better sense of what Jesus was concerned about. Verse 16 of Mark 8, he says, They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? Tell me. And they said to him, Twelve. And I broke the seven for the four thousand. And how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? I kind of answered in a sheepish voice because I have to imagine that's how I would have answered if I had been there. Well, I mean, there were seven, I guess. There were twelve. I mean, (laughs) look, in the past couple of weeks, these guys have witnessed Jesus providing bread for thousands of people. Out of almost nothing. And after each one was done, they had leftovers. And the leftovers they had came in these really interesting numbers. These really interesting increments, right? They had seen 5,000 fed, then 12 baskets left over. Just enough for 12 men. They had fed 4,000, then they had 7 baskets that were overflowing so that everyone had enough. But it's 7. That's a number I remember that is important to God. 7. And he's asking them, guys, hello, have you not been watching what's going on? We're sitting here in the boat, and he says, you have little faith. You have been watching me do these kinds of miracles, and you're worried that you're not going to get lunch today. Have I not demonstrated to you that food is not going to be a problem for me? It's like like free bread all the time. I can, you know what? Here's a loaf. Are you guys happy? (laughs) You can see why I'm not Jesus. 
for many reasons. But, you know, it's like you just want to tell these guys, what more do I have to do to tell you that this is not a problem for us right now? And here's the irony of this. The irony of this is they're doing exactly the same thing the Pharisees were doing in in their own way. Because those miracles, the the feeding of the various groups, that was Jesus' way of talking to these men about what he could do through them and showing them, this is how you're going to serve me in the kingdom. I'm going to do the hard part for you. And they missed the sign. And Jesus says it in Mark, your hearts are hardened. You know, a hard heart doesn't necessarily mean an unbelieving heart. What a hard heart means is it's impenetrable to spiritual truth. And I don't mean that God isn't capable of penetrating it. I'm saying... As God works with someone, if they have a hard heart, they are actively resisting the revelation of God, even though they don't realize they're doing it, or even if they tell themselves they're open to God. It's a stance, it's an attitude, it's an approach that is not letting God work because of stubbornness or pride or something else. It's hardened to the input that God would provide. And these guys had hard hearts, and they missed the spiritual truth of what Jesus was doing. If you had asked them, did he feed people? Yes. Did he do it miraculously? Oh, yes. Was it incredible? Oh, well, you, should, you should have been there. What's it mean? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they would have told you at that point, because they obviously didn't get it. Jesus points out their foolishness in verses 9 through 11, as he runs them back through the whole of it. What about those numbers? You know, 12 is enough for each man to have a basket. That kind of says, obviously, that he's going to make sure they always get provided for, right? But you know the number 12 has a meaning in Scripture. Its meaning is that it's God working through men, God working through government, basically. God ruling through the agency of men in government. And the point of this is that God was going to perform the work of the church. He was going to work through the hands and the, the, the leadership of these men to care for the people that come into the body of Christ. Not just them, of course, but others who would follow in their footsteps. It was God making a statement to them. And when he had seven baskets left over, I've told you guys before that the number seven means complete or perfection. And an easy way to understand that is that we have the number 100% and God has the number seven. They mean the same thing. And so it was God's way of saying, I can be perfect and complete through you. That is to say, my plan is sufficient. I'll get the problem solved. You can depend on me. All right, well, ask yourself this. Was it random that he had 12 left over and then 7 left over? Just happened to work out that way? If that's what you think, you don't really understand how God works. Because there's nothing random or or by chance with God. He picked 12, and he picked 7, and that's his point to the disciples. How many did you have? Think about it, guys. What does 12 mean? What does 7 mean? Are you listening to me right now? The answer is no. They were not listening. That's why he says in verse 11, You should not have been worried about where your physical bread was going to come from, that should have been the least of your concerns. You should have been thinking about the spiritual meaning of what I'm doing here. They had the same problem, in my mind, as the Pharisees. They couldn't make sense. Here's here's the comparison. The Pharisees could not make sense of the signs that Jesus was doing for them because they lacked divine insight to understand it. Their problem was their heart had not been opened by God to understand the truth. But in the case of the disciples, they couldn't understand the meaning of the signs that they were seeing, not because they hadn't had their hearts opened to revelation, but because their hearts were hardened to what God was trying to say to them. It's kind of the opposite side of the problem. There's the problem of God hasn't moved yet, and then there's the problem of we're not listening anymore. Mark 8, 18, 
Jesus said to them in the passage I read to you, he says, you have eyes, but you do not see. You have ears, but you do not hear. Remember he said at other times to people that there are those who have no eyes to see, no ears to hear. That's a way of discussing someone who hasn't had their heart opened yet by God. This phrase, though, says you have eyes, you had ears, you just weren't using them. This is a problem of not listening and not looking. They were not paying attention. And so when he said, beware the leaven, none of them had the insight to say leaven. That means sin. Pharisee says, what's he trying to say to us, guys? Let's think about this for a second and do a little home group study over that for about five minutes in the boat. No, they just looked at each other and they said, I think he means we should have had lunch. What was he saying? Look, there's a continual struggle in the, in the life of every Christian to avoid the temptations he was talking about. Self-righteousness, greed, worldliness, and so on. Pride of life. But you're not going to pick up on how God is teaching you about those concerns unless you have a stance, uh, an approach to life that recognizes that the Lord is speaking to you not just through His Word, but through the experiences of life that are counseled by what the Word says about them. And if you go through life oblivious to that, you're probably missing God left and right. Because if your attitude is, well, He'll tell me when He needs to tell me something, He'll just you know burn a bush in front of me or split a Red Sea in front of me, and I'll know that the God is trying to talk to me, you're going to wait a long time. Because that is not the normal path of God. He does not normally open Red Seas or burn bushes in front of people. What he does is he gives them the full counsel of his word. And then he says, read it. And then as you go through your life, you should have a stance that as you experience life, whatever that means, people, issues, trials, situations, you should be asking yourself through every one of those moments, what am I supposed to learn here, Jesus? What are you trying to tell me? What's this about? And he's trying to talk to you through those experiences. Do you remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19? Let me remind you of that story as a closing illustration because I think it's an excellent one of what we're learning about these men. There was a moment in that prophet's life when he did a, a great miracle on Mount Carmel, calling fire down from heaven and destroying the prophets of Baal. He thought that would result in revival, that he would now be the final blow against Baal and against Ahab and Jezebel, and he would finally be able to bring revival to Israel. Uh, it didn't work. After that moment passed, Israel went right back to their idolatry. He gets mad. He, he has a little pity party. And he decides he's going to tell God what he thinks. And he starts a south march 400 miles down to a place called Horeb. This is the place that Moses met God when he received the law. Why did Elijah choose that place? Well, he remembers. This is where God met Moses. And so, literally, Elijah goes down there to demand an audience with God. And to have God effectively explain himself for why he had not seen more success in his ministry. And when he gets there, he asks God, uh, he tells God, kill me. I'm the last one on earth who is following you. It's a way of mocking God, if you will, of saying to God, you failed. I'm the only one left. Might as well kill me too. To which God says, tell you what, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And of course, that makes Elijah feel very privileged, and he's happy to hear that. So uh, just like he did with Moses, he tells Elijah, go into a cleft of the rock and I'll let my presence pass by you. But he's going to give Elijah a little demonstration to make a point. And the text of 1 Kings 19 says that at first, God starts to give these huge, miraculous, powerful displays to Elijah. It starts with an earthquake that's breaking the mountain open. And then a wind so powerful that the rocks are breaking. And then a fire that consumes the top of the mountain. But after each one of those displays, the text says... But God was not in the earthquake. And God was not in the wind. God was not in the fire. Moses, I mean, Elijah is still waiting. And then it says a soft breeze came, barely noticeable. 
And the text says God was in the breeze. What's the point? Well, the point is, Elijah, I don't always work through big and miraculous displays. Yeah, you called fire down from heaven. Good for you. That wasn't intended as a revival. That was me doing something else. And because I don't work through great displays, you're looking for the wrong thing. You're 400 miles south of where I asked you to be in the ministry that I gave you, complaining to me that you haven't seen the result you expected, never dawned on you that maybe I'm working in ways you've never even understood or seen yet. That maybe I'm working like a quiet breeze that you didn't even detect. You're too busy demanding it happen in a big and impressive way. Friends, that's not how God works. Not in world events and not in your own life. Not generally. He does, for every Red Sea he parts or burning bush he consumes with fire, whatever, there's a million things he does in small, quiet ways around you. That's where your attitude ought to be. You know what he does to Elijah after that moment? He fires him. Literally, he says, you're out of a job. Go back and anoint your successor, Elisha. If you're paying attention closely, you can train yourself to think spiritually. You can follow the signs that God is giving you. But if you're like the prophet Elijah, you're going to miss the small things if you're too busy looking for things that aren't there. And if you're like the disciples, if your attitude is only about the earthly and you're not giving any thought to what God is doing in the spiritual realm, that as as he does bring those signs, you're going to miss them. You're not going to be thinking about them in the right, right way. So we don't want to follow him like a Pharisee. That is, we don't want to be uh, demanding sign after sign after sign when our heart's closed to the truth. But neither do we want to be like those disciples where our attitude about the world is so all-consuming that spiritual matters are in the background and outside our attention. What we want to do is live in the light of the counsel of God's Word, training ourselves to see and to hear spiritual truth whenever it comes our way, and not let the world pull us off that goal, or the enemy for that matter. Serve him with eyes for eternity, not dependent on signs, but neither ignorant to the things he tells you through the signs he gives. That's our goal here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the disciples. I thank you for their innocence at times and their ignorance at times. I thank you, Father, for their obedience at times. I thank you, Father, that as examples you've shown us that we can begin poorly, finish well, and all by your grace. We also thank you for a church, Father, that preaches your word. I pray tonight, uh, as I did last night, Father, I pray this morning that you would lead us into a life in which we are attentive to you, attentive to your word, and attentive to your movement in our life, neither seeking for signs in place of truth, nor missing the ones you give us as you direct our steps. Just keep us in your counsel at all times, Father. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.